This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, you're listening to the New Yorker Poetry Podcast. I'm Kevin Young, poetry editor of the New Yorker magazine. On this program, we ask poets to select a poem for the New Yorker archive to read and discuss, along with one of their own poems that's been published in the magazine. My guest today is Peter Balakian, whose honors include the 2016 Pulitzer Prize for Poetry, the Presidential Medal, and Moses Kornazi Medal from the Republic of Armenia, and the Spenlove Prize for Social Justice, Tolerance, and Diplomacy. Welcome, Peter. Thanks for joining us. Great to be here, Kevin. <laughs> it's really great to have you. The poem you picked is In a Dark Time by Theodore Rutke. Can you tell us why this particular poem stood out to you from the archive? You know, it's one of Rutke's uh, late poems, mm. and uh, I find Rutke uh, a, a powerful figure from mid-20th century American poetry and poetry in English. And this poem strikes me as having a kind of urgency and what I might even call an existential richness to it that that gives it uh, an enduring power. I, I first encountered this poem in the early 1970s, and it's a poem that has stayed with me over the decades, a poem I continue to teach. And I have written, a, I've written about Retke, and this is a poem I've also written about. Let's hear it. Here's Peter Balakian reading In a Dark Time by Theodore Retke. In a Dark Time, One. In a dark time, the eye begins to see. I meet my shadow in the deepening shade. I hear my echo in the echoing wood. A lord of nature weeping to a tree. I live between the heron and the wren. Beasts of the hill, serpents of the den. Two. What's madness but nobility of soul at odds with circumstance? The day's on fire. I know the purity of pure despair. My shadow pinned against a sweating wall. That place among the rocks. Is it a cave or winding path? The edge is what I have. Three. A steady storm of correspondences. A night flowing with birds. A ragged moon. And in broad day, the midnight come again. A man goes far to find out what he is. Death of the self in a long, tearless night. All natural shapes blazing unnatural light. Four. 
Dark, dark my light, and darker my desire. My soul, like some heat-maddened summer fly, keeps buzzing at the sill. Which eye is I? A fallen man, I climb out of my fear. A mind enters itself, and God the mind. And one is one, free in the tearing wind. That was In a Dark Time by Theodore Rutke, which appeared originally in the January 16, 1960 issue of the magazine, and again in the December 3, 2018 New York Stories archival issue. So tell me about this poem. One thing we should say is that in the book that this poem eventually appeared in, there are no numbers, but it appeared with numbers in the magazine. Obviously, (laughs) you read it so well that hearing the numbers, it has a kind of majesty that if it was all one thing, I think it would feel different. I'm not saying it's better or worse, but there's something about those numbers and that, you know, starting over again, you really hear that ren and den. And is it a cave or winding path? The edge is what I have. That's one of the great lines. Extraordinary, yes. Well, you know, it's interesting, Kevin, the the idea that Retsky had numbers in there originally – Uh, The larger group of poems, In a Dark Time, commences, and these appeared in Retke's final book, 1963, called A Far Field. The sequence is called, I mean, the the group of poems is called sequence, sometimes metaphysical, and I think that Retke was thinking sequentially when Mm -hmm. he wrote this poem, and obviously he started with numbers as a kind of way to orchestrate four movements yes. in a very powerful meditation. And I even find the notion of sometimes metaphysical very rich for this poem, which seems to move <laughs> right. between the metaphysical and the organic and the psychological. Right. And, you know, uh, as Berryman called him, the garden master. You yes. know, he, yes. you, he always has that sort of natural world at hand there, Rutke. But there's something, you know, as you say, metaphysical about it. It's about human nature, the nature that he sees, I find. It's very much an interesting uh, dialectic between, I, I think, this, uh, I'm going to say between psycho- the, the, the self, the psychological self, the natural world, and the possibility of transcendence. Mm. And, um, you know, Rutke once wrote back in the mid-1940s when he was beginning his famous greenhouse poems, which I think are the great kind of breakthrough poems for him in, in his career. He, he wrote, I wanted to write a poem, The Shape of the Psyche Under Great Stress. Mm-hmm. He, he was a man who suffered severe uh, bipolar disorder. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he, and he, he went through uh, electroshock therapy. He really did know... Uh, the depth of mental anguish and yeah, suffering. that's right. And he takes that, I think he uses that so powerfully in this poem. It's not a poem in which he's parading his um, psychiatric conditions on his sleeve, but in which he's so m- masterfully absorbed his, his mental suffering into a, a larger, broader human struggle uh, to find... Um, release and transcendence and wholeness. Yeah. No, and I I think there's a procession, if not a progression, 
through that, you know, and in a dark time, the eye begins to see. That's a really interesting starting point. And it's very personal, as you say, death of the self in a long, tearless night, all natural shapes blazing on natural light. And that contrast between dark and light, which he's playing with, can get, you know, frankly, overused. But he somehow renews it, uh, I think, in this poem. And the other thing I felt rereading it, in the light of day, as it were, it was also about dark times, if yes. you know what I mean, and not like just his personal that's struggle, right. but a kind of public political struggle. I think even. That's right, and you know, you're noting that Kevin reminds me that my good friend Robert J. Lifton, the psychiatrist and uh, historian who has written, you know, two dozen books on mass violence and dark times, always quotes the opening of this poem. Uh, at his at the end of his lectures, because he, he uh, as you're noting, he he also sees a universal emblem in that opening line, uh, and it's also a hopeful one, you know, because uh, I think Retke, uh, from the start of this poem, is noting the dialectic between suffering, hope, and light, and and then in the end of this particular poem, there is a kind of uh, catharsis and freedom that happens, which I think gives this poem uh, an enormous psychological power. Yeah, and I think, you know, Rutke's sometimes uh, less remembered, let's say, of the, quote, confessional poets, Um, but he was really early to write about some of these questions, and I think one of the best at enacting uh, what used to be called madness. You know, there's this kind of way in which he's able to think about, as you put it, mental anguish, but not as a descriptor, but as a process. Uh, those sections, I remember when I would have students who were trying to do something kind of big, kind of bold, but I would say, go read Rudke, but don't read the stuff that's in the anthologies. You must go to the actual books yeah, where absolutely. those sequences are enacting and thinking about the poem uh, as a mind as you say, like sort of at war with itself. I think that's right, Kevin. And and one of the reasons I chose this poem is also because I I agree with you. I think Retzky is way underread today. Um, And I I think that uh, his best poems really are large and, and enduring. This is one of them. And he is, and I've argued this in a piece I've written about Retzky, that I think he is the first confessional, if that matters in a sense of historicity, I I think that the greenhouse poems of the mid and late 1940s broke ground uh, in in merging what I like to call the ontogenetic and the phylogenetic. I mean, moving between, you know, the the, the anguish of the self and a sense of uh, an archetypal natural world out there. And uh, other poets would move into that zone, Lowell, Berriman, Plath, Sexton, very, very shortly thereafter. But for the sake of history, it's worth noting what Retke did in the 1940s for American poetics and those uh, lost son poems. Yeah. That I think you're noting here when you say that those poems enact such an extraordinary psychological processes of discovery and unfolding, and they're never didactic. They're always about the self in motion. That's so I right. always want to recommend to our listeners, just read The Lost Son, the first <laughs> poem in that yeah, cycle. Yeah, wow, that's amazing. an amazing piece of work. And Plath, she credited him, right, and was very clear about that her transformation in many ways was thinking about his poems. Very much, yeah. I think she, she found a lot of energy in Retke's organic 
psychic energy. You know, I think of her poem like Ariel or Tulips. Um, those poems have that, you know, that I keep using the word archetypal because Recky was very interested in Jung, <laughs> and he's bringing Jung into poetics and his own mm -hmm. poems, I think in an organic way, not in an academic way, and I think she really liked that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, do you think it's that, you know, his disciples, as it were, I mean, it's the wrong word, but um, surpassed him as a poet, or why do you think he is forgotten? You know, it's and he's not forgotten, but like, why isn't he? Yeah, yeah, why isn't you know, he the, the person we're like talk to, talking about when we think of confessional, he's the last person we perhaps. Think you know, of. I think you hit on something just just a moment ago, Kevin, when you you, t you were mentioning your, your your remarks to your students. I feel that Rethke is anthologized poorly. Yeah, he's anthologized by more of his mid fifties, Yeatsian formal poems. Now, this is also a formal poem, and I want to say something about how powerful I think this poem is formally. Yes, yes. But I, I do think that the most experimental and dynamic Rethke is an anthologized. Right. That's the thing is I think you nailed it. He's very experimental. People don't realize that. You read the Rutke in the anthology. He's like, well, he likes greenhouses. He's on the top of the house. You know? right, right. <laughs> <laughs> but, but you dig a little deeper and you'll say, wow, he is really trying to see how language can exist without verb or language yes. can exist that's only verb. You know, he's really thinking about uh, language he as is. a medium. Very much the plasticity and the oral, uh, the, the kind of oral rhymes. And, you know, Rethke at one point said, my true ancestors are the Bible and Mother Goose. <laughs> so <laughs> really he, he wanted to really massage the infantile intensity uh, of, of syntax. Yeah. And doesn't he have great kids' poems? Isn't that right? He does. He yeah. has those uh, poems for uh, uh, poems based on animals for children called I Am Says the Lamb. <laughs> what a great uh, title. Yeah. Yeah, the great poems. No, and that's I, – I have a personal soft spot for uh, – children's books by poets, which I think are a genre unto themselves. And, you know, everyone from James Baldwin to Elizabeth uh, Bishop have these children's books, you know, who... Elliot, too, with his cat's poems. <laughs> of course, yeah, of course. Yeah. And there, there's a sort of charm, but also, you know, a mother goose that yes. they've, they're learning from also in their, quote, adult poetry. And one of my favorite nursery jingles in Rethke's Lost Son poem goes, Even Stephen, all is lest, I haven't time for sugar. Put your finger in your nose and there will be a booger. <laughs> so, you know, <laughs> there you have it. He did this stuff and right in the middle of a poem. He <laughs> right, had the, right, what he right. called jump rope. Uh, jump rope language. Well, that's so interesting. What a, what a, powerful. And so tell us about the more formal aspects of this poem because, you know, we're talking about Mother Goose, but this is, you know, Mother Goose on uh, something. You know, uh, Kevin, I, I feel that the, the rhyming in this poem is really brilliant. Um, uh, the, the, these are four six-line stanzas going A, B, B, A, C, C. And um, the, the rhymes, for example, like shade and tree or despair and fire. And fire. They're really subtle rhymes. And, and there's also mind and wind closing the poem. Mm -hmm. you know, they have that Dickinsonian slantness to them. Yes. They're a little less slant. They're, they're somewhere between slant and, and perfect. But they're beautiful <laughs> and right. they're rich. And they create a kind of acoustic for this poem that is so uh, accomplished yeah. and memorable. 
and and they have another way to think of it for our, our readers might be they they visually look like they write more than they do sometimes. Yeah, yes. And so there's this kind of tension I think that also is part of the point of the poem, which is things aren't always what they seem. Uh, you know, they they seem one way. But as, you, as we were talking about, the eye begins to see there's something else. And I love that moment uh, where he says, which eye is I? And we return to the EYE and the eye of the poem. And I'm really, you know, trying to work out what that is in a poem because I think a poem is always obsessed with that yes. switch between the self and the thing that sees. Absolutely. And there are two things that I was going to note in, in response to what you're saying. One is that this is a poem – in which the poet is not afraid of taking risks with big language. <laughs> and there are times when, you know, I, I like to talk to my students about rhetoric and poetry and, and those, mo those big risk moments and how hard they are to pull off and how they need to be set up. Redke here, at the, at, the, at the peak of his powers in this poem, is taking enormous risks with large rhetorical gestures, I know the purity of pure despair, mm -hmm. which I is I, the mind enters itself in God, the mind. Rathke never used the word God, rarely used the word God right. in his poem. I think Rathke was a spiritual poet, but he wasn't orthodoxly religious. Mm. But here he takes that risk with that big word. So it has that, or what's madness but nobility of soul at odds with circumstance? You know, there are many days when I walk around saying those lines. <laughs> I mean, just right, right. They're, they're, they so, they so, they're Shakespearean, mm -hmm. you know? Well, and... and in Shakespeare, in Rudke, and sort of in our time, saying the truth or saying these things can feel, you know, Shakespeare gives the madmen, the clowns, the truest lines, of course, in, in the plays. And here he's observing this thing that may be true of us. I mean, we're in this crazy moment yes. where it seems like someone telling the truth is crazy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know? no, you're absolutely it's, right. It's madness, you know? Absolutely and so there's right. this really interesting uh, comment on, on our times. And I think that's the kind of thing that poetry can do and does do. You know, it gives us language that is, to quote Kenneth Burke's phrase, equip that's language that's equipment for living. And I think this, this poem is equipment for living in many ways. And in dark times, and we're in some hard times here, and this poem may not be pointedly political, but what's so um, rich about its uh, dimensions is that it, 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 it does provide us with rhetoric that's um, uh, meaningful and insightful and, and powerful in, in, in a time that may be difficult, both socially, politically, or personally. Sure. Now, in the May 28, 2018 issue, The New Yorker published your poem, Eggplant which we'll hear you read in a moment. Is there anything you'd like to say about this poem? How did it come to you? Why, you know, let, let's talk about it just briefly before we sure. launch into it. The poem is part of a, a cycle of poems I've been writing that are kind of, I don't know, object meditations on fruits and vegetables. And uh, I think this is one of the kind of important places for poetic imagination. So many poets are engaged in object meditations, whether they be on paintings, on on architecture, on uh, works of art, uh, on fruits and vegetables. Uh, <laughs> still lives, in a way. Yeah, they're kind of still lives. And uh, then as we engage in the meditation, we find 
that the the thing or the object takes us to places that uh, surprise us. Wonderful. Let's hear uh, this poem. Here's Peter Balakian reading his poem, Eggplant. Eggplant. I love the white moon circles and the purple halos on a plate as the salt sweat them. The oil in the pan smoked like bad days in the Syrian desert when a moon stayed all day, when morning was a purple elegy for the last friend's scene, when the fog of the riverbank rose like a holy ghost. My mother made those white moons sizzle in some egg wash and salt, some parsley appeared from the garden, and summer evenings came with no memory but the table with white dishes. Shining aubergine, black-skinned beauty, bitter apple. We used our hands. Mm. That was Eggplant by Peter Balakian. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. Each week on the Writer's Voice podcast, New Yorker fiction writers read their newly published stories from the magazine. You can hear from authors like Colson Whitehead. Turner nudged Elwood, who had a look of horror on his face. They saw it. Griff wasn't going down. He was going to go for it, no matter what happened after. Or Joy Williams. Her father was silent. Slowly, he passed his hand over his hair. This usually meant that he was traveling to a place immune to her presence, a place that indeed contradicted her presence. She might as well go to lunch. Listen to new stories or dive into our archive of great fiction. You can find the work of your favorite fiction writers and discover new ones. Listen and follow The Writer's Voice wherever you get your podcasts. That poem is so subtly powerful, I think. I love that moment where it says, came with no memory. Uh, but. <laughs> so tell me about that, <laughs> the no memory and the but, because it seems like that's part of it. Is it that the, the moment is so vivid it's not a memory or that one's alive in the moment? Uh, or is it that everything boils down to this table with white dishes? Well, the... That word memory is a kind of fulcrum word for the poem because um, although I start the poem, uh, you know, remembering the eggplants being cut uh, in my kitchen, in my my mother's kitchen in suburban New Jersey, uh, say when I was 10 years old in the early 1960s or something, uh, immediately the, the image of the eggplant evokes something dark and traumatic in our family and culture's past. And so the image of the Syrian desert uh, takes takes my memory back to the Armenian genocide. And although my grandmother doesn't appear in this poem in a in a trope or an image, uh, it, 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 she's a, her experience as a as an Armenian genocide death march survivor is evoked with that 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 image of the of this vegetable, which is um, very much a staple in the Armenian, uh, you know, the Armenian cuisine. 
but it also becomes a historical emblem. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. so uh, the elegy for the last French scene and the fog on the riverbank like a holy ghost and so on, that, that's evoking hard times. Yeah. So food is never f- just food, is it? <laughs> That's right. Well, it's interesting because I write about food. Uh, food appears in poems of mine. Uh, is this, you know, an ode in, or do you think of it that way? Or is it – you called it a meditation, which I like that idea. And how are they different? For me, you're not just praising this eggplant, which I think praise is complex. You know, if you're just praising, you have to praise something that, you know – is worthy of praise, but also maybe unexpected. You know, when Yusuf uh, has Ode to the Maggot, you know, then right. you're thinking right. about this right. lowly thing that is yes. huge. And I think what I love about you using the eggplant is, as you said, it's a staple. It means something in this cuisine, but it also means something else in this poem. Yeah, so well, I, I, I appreciate your, your noting the differences between the ode and the meditation, but the, and they, I think they also, maybe in this poem, there's a little overlapping um, because there is a praise uh, of, of the beauty, just the sensuous beauty of this natural world, the eggplant, a piece of the natural world, and, and, its, gourd, and its color, which still, when I slice them once a week on my own cutting board, uh, because I cook a lot, uh, you know, they still, they still uh, speak back to me. Right, right. And I close the poem with the praise of the, of, of the eggplant. But, but as you're also noting, I, I guess what I'd say is that the meditation m- might move in places that are a little wilder or more unexpected, perhaps, and so that the poem, so that the eggplant has a, as a as a thing as a as a beautiful emanation of nature also catapults me my imagination back into the historical mm-hmm. that's the meditative part of it perhaps yeah they both are going on I think. yeah yeah well i love the simplicity both of the poem and of the dish you know the some egg wash and salt some parsley appeared from the garden that's a lovely thank you uh, image. But then this last one, and I want to think about it just for a little bit longer. Shining aubergine, black-skinned, break, beauty, bitter apple. What a great, great word. I want to start calling them bitter apples. But also all those words from skin to beauty to uh, the apple, the sort of uh, Eden quality, pre-Labzerian. That's there, you know. And then we used our hands Tell us about that. Well, yeah, I, I again, I, I appreciate and love listening to you reflect on those two lines that precede the last line in which uh, I'm, again, I want to just um, linger. I think it's one of the things that the poetic imagination does so much of the time. It's lingering on the layers of of the sensual world and this is why poetry and and I'm not just referring to me here you know mm. poetry in a broad sense brings us such profound and indispensable knowledge of reality you know because poems do this they you know we as poets get obsessed with the 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 complex layers of things but but okay, I'm, I I go on too far too much here. <laughs> no, but, I, that's perfect. But in the end, I, I guess uh, uh, we used our hands became a kind of uh, image of passion and uh, n- you know un- unmediated love 
of of ingesting this beautiful food and this beautifully prepared vegetable and so that I I didn't want there to be any mediating reality like a cold metal fork or knife. When you uh, put it that way, it sounds, know. why do we use these I things? Know. You know? I always feel the a- Asian culture has it better because they at least have wood, and wood is a more organic way. But sometimes you just need to use your hands. Yeah, that's right. Right, for the things we love. Yeah. I want to ask just uh, sort of lastly, what else appears in this, in your garden of verses that you're sort of working toward the sequence? I have a range of vegetables uh, in this in this sequence that include some things that are really, I find, located in a Armenian Middle Eastern uh, terrain like quince and apricot. I mean, apricot's universal, but it's Armenia's national fruit. But tomatoes, zucchinis, um, cracked wheat, bulgar, which is something we grew up eating a lot of cracked wheat. Um, and it's some things that are very American, too, but, but a, a variety, walnuts, grape leaves. I, it's been fun. to. I mean, this is one small segment of a, a longer book I'm completing now. Are these poems at the heart of it or the whole thing one, one meditation on this? Or? No, no. I'd say th- these, these are a, a, a group of poems that have their own kind of space in a book that has a few layers to it, including an, one more because I, my two previous books have two 50-section multi-sequence poems, and I have one more sort of 45, 50-section long poem to finish what I've been working on for about 15 or 20 years now, a tri- this trilogy that I call my Ziggurat Trilogy. That's amazing. T- tell me just a little bit more about that, the Ziggurat Trilogy for you. Well, the Ziggurat Trilogy began with a... Uh, um, the, the a poem of 45 sections or so in my book of uh, 2010 called Ziggurat. And, it w- and that poem was called A Train Ziggurat Elegy. And the next installment of that was Ozone Journal. And, uh, and I that was get, 2016. That, that was 2015. And, and then you won in yes. 2016 for that book. And the new one, I'll leave the title off till it's absolutely sealed. <laughs> but I would say in, in these poems, and they're all set in Manhattan. And uh, in fact, the first poem, A Train Ziggurat Elegy, a lot, a, lot a lot of it is set in Manhattan and in lower Manhattan during an era of the 1970s when I was commuting down here and the city was in another phase of its evolution. And I started writing the A-Train Ziggurat Elegy poem after the World Trade Towers came down. And my, int- my, my shock and my engagement with the towers had to do with my feeling of intimacy with them having been a mail runner, mail, mail deliverer, mail, mail guy for a shipping company. And I was in the towers a lot as a young guy, as a teenager and college student. And now their absence really haunted me, um, as they haunted all of us. So that was some animating impetus for that poem. That poem has many layers to it. And, 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 the, and, and both Ozone and Ziggurat um, move between the Middle East and New York City. Um, 
in Ozone Journal, um, a piece of that poem is situated with the persona. I always like to use the word persona. Yeah, because exactly. People, Especially when it's very personal. One it, has to say persona. It's not a memoir, even <laughs> right. though it's personal. Yeah, yeah exactly. We all, we all know that. But readers sometimes think, oh, this is your life story. Well, yeah, piece of it maybe. Yeah, but, sure, right. But, 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 the, but, the, but the autobiographical piece was that I was on a forensic dig with a 60 Minutes crew doing a segment for 60 Minutes in 2009. And we were digging uh, up the remains of Armenian bones in the Syrian desert in a place called Deir Zor, which was the epicenter of death during the Armenian genocide in 1915. And so, uh, so I have a little, I have a little dialectical piece right. that moves between Syria and New York City in that poem. Yeah. And now in this third poem. Uh, I'm picking up various threads, but the uh, cultural, political tensions in this poem, in the new poem, the new sequential 50-section poem, uh, are centered around um, the geological history of the planet and and some climate change engagements. I'll just say that very generally. Sure. Well, I look forward to reading it. Thank you. Peter, thanks so much for talking with us today. Kevin, thank you. It's been great being here. Eggplant by Peter Balakian, as well as Theodore Retke's poem, In a Dark Time, can be found on newyorker.com. In a Dark Time is from the collected poems of Theodore Retke, published by Anchor Books, a division of Penguin Random House. Peter Balakian's latest book is Ozone Journal. Thanks so much. You may subscribe to this podcast, the Fiction Podcast, the Writer's Voice Podcast, and the Politics and More Podcast, by searching for The New Yorker in your podcast app. You can hear more poetry read by the authors on newyorker.com and on the New Yorker app, available from the App Store or from Google Play. The theme music is The Corner by Christian Scott Atunde Ajua, courtesy of Stretch Music and Rope Dope. The New Yorker Poetry Podcast is produced by Jill Duboff of newyorker.com with help from Hannah Eisenman. You come to the New Yorker Radio Hour for conversations that go deeper with people you really want to hear from, whether it's Bruce Springsteen or Questlove or Olivia Rodrigo, Liz Cheney, or the godfather of artificial intelligence, Jeffrey Hinton, or some of my extraordinarily well-informed colleagues at the New Yorker. So join us every week on the New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts.